Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of the novella, The Full Armor of God. This is your narrator and the author of the story, J.J. Campanella. Let me make a couple of comments about this story before we actually get into it. First, I want to thank Tony Smith of the Starship Sofa podcast for originally agreeing to play this little tidbit of SF. I decided in the end that it was a little long for his podcast, and maybe a bit too inflammatory. If any ordinance is going to rain down on anybody's head, it should probably be me. This novella was written about 12 years ago, and it was submitted to several different SF mags at the time, and I was pretty much told the same thing by all of them. Analog, Isaac Asimov's magazine, Amazing Stories, the list does go on, and I don't need to give it all. But they all told me that it was too damn long for their magazines, and there was no way they were going to publish somebody who was unknown at the time, and they weren't going to give them that much space. Second, I was told in no uncertain terms that this story was, well, I used the word already, inflammatory. That's the word used by the editor of Isaac Asimov's magazine at the time. The story would basically piss off Catholics, Jews, and Muslims altogether. Again, no magazine was going to take that kind of heat. The analog editor told me, this was not too long after the first bombing of the Twin Towers, that he thought that I was an idiot to be writing stuff that would just make Muslims get more angry at us, and he echoed that famous line of the 1990s, why can't we all just get along? Well, the story was not written to make anybody angry. It was written, as with all SF, as an examination of the question, what would happen if? In this case, my question was, what would happen if the Islamic Jihad succeeded? What enemies would they have left? And how would those enemies respond? I can tell you now that I do not believe that the Roman Catholic Church could or would respond as they did in my story. But I also believe at the same time that the gentlest of house cats will defend herself savagely when backed into a corner by a large, nasty, drooling threat. Christians believe that you allow your other cheek to be slapped, but there's a militant side to the church that even now, though submerged, lingers after a couple of thousand years. I'll let you guys judge for yourselves. Perhaps all those editors were right, but it will be nice to get the comments of those who are not wrapped up in the enigma that is the publishing industry. And now, the full armor of God. 1. The West collapsed, just as we always predicted it would. It collapsed under the weight of its greed, its arrogance, and its sexuality. It collapsed because of the Houris wearing $10,000 designer dresses that barely covered their bodies. It collapsed due to its increasing gluttony and usurious business practices that gave out credit cards to children and allowed governments to be run on massive debts that saw no limits. It collapsed because of its insatiable addict's appetite for the blood of the earth which my people sold to it. And it collapsed because it was the will of Allah that it would do so. What arose from the dust of the West was something that had never gone away, something that had survived for thousands of years, that which my people had been unable to eradicate since sword had been plunged upon sword more than a thousand years before, the Holy Roman Empire. We had easily destroyed the corrupted governments of America and Europe, by economic might and through tactics which some called terrorism, we brought them down. But 
we forgot that those who follow the prophet Yeshua were above and beyond governments. The Roman Church had kept the light of Western civilization burning for more than 21 centuries through every sort of political change that had been wrought in the world, through vandals and goths, through local conflicts and world wars, through communism and fascism, through global warming and famine, nothing had ever brought down the church. When the jihad finally turned its eyes to the last survivor of the West, the only power left there, we learned our mistake by waking a sleeping lion. The Roman church with its millions of followers and treasures built over centuries became the West's last hope of survival. The ancient battle between my people and the Roman Church was renewed, and the Crusades were reignited. This time the Church ruthlessly fought for its own survival, like the lioness protecting her cubs. For centuries we had tried to scour the world of the infidels, and we used every tactic at our disposal. We never imagined the nightmare that would come back to haunt us for all our troubles. The war on the Lebanese front was not going well for the Vatican. They had gotten pushed back out of Beirut for the second time, losing 5,000 troops in the process. The eastern forces were too tied up in Iran to aid the fight at the western front. The cardinals were getting desperate because the Pope was threatening to send them into Lebanon to personally supervise the war if they did not get results. That was about the time my battalion was called up. My battalion was the first Vatican Rangers. We were the best. We were the most malevolent. We were the toughest and strongest. No other troops had the bio-augmentation that we did. No one. We jokingly called ourselves the elect, an old Roman term referring to converts who were going through the process of becoming enchurched. That certainly sounded like us. Until we were captured and imprinted, most of us were Palestinian, all of us Muslim. We thought if anyone were the elect, we were, and by Allah's hands, we became enchurched by a baptism of fire. Command of the Vatican Rangers was mine. I had been rewarded with the rank of Lieutenant Colonel a few weeks previously for my battle tactics in the Gaza Strip region. I had only had a troop loss of 23% in the long firefight there. Because of me, the Gaza Strip again belonged to the church for the first time in two years. For that, they promoted me and transferred me to the command of the Vatican Rangers, the elect. My first day of contact with the elect was odd, to say the least. When I was ushered into the old CO's office, he just stared at me. He was silent for the longest moment. That was good because it gave me a chance to stare at him. He was the most curious creature on two legs that I had ever seen in my life. He had polycarbon body armor covering every square inch of his skin. He looked for all the world like he was made of black plastic. I did not find out until later that he did not have any skin underneath his body armor. The body armor was his skin. He wore no uniform over his black, all-encasing plastic armor. Insignia of rank was printed directly upon the polycarb. The body armor covering his head like a hood with his face suffocatingly wrapped in the black material. 
Even his now sexless crotch was covered in the armor. After a while, he nodded to me and gave a short salute. Welcome to the first Vatican Rangers, Colonel St. Stephen. Good to see you again. His voice sounded completely human, even if his appearance boded otherwise. I hesitated a moment. See me again? It's good to be here, Colonel St. Michael, but I must say that I do not believe that we have ever met. The polycarb around his mouth ridged up into a vague grin. His eyes, glittering like solid black marbles, changed not at all. We have, he answered shortly. I had never met the man before. I certainly would never have forgotten a face like that. I had never seen anyone like him. I tried the tactful approach. Really, sir, where have we met? He waved a hand in a generally easterly direction, toward the entire war. We fought together near Sidon about three years back, before imprinting. Oh, I said quietly. The colonel brought his fist to his chest. I was Alam Mohammed. There was a sad kind of pride in the way he said it that churned my stomach. He looked at me expectantly. At least it looked like expectation. It was hard to tell with the black polycarb over his face. I assumed he wanted me to speak my old name, even though he knew it, and I, sadly, knew who he was now. St. Michael had been a quiet, well-read software engineer who had worked for the Syrian government. He had been subjugated into fighting for the diminishing forces of the Arab League two years ago. We had both been captured by the Western forces at about the same time. This sad cyborg thing before me was all that was left of my former friend, Alam. Asking for my old name was almost like begging a magic invocation from me, an invocation that could conjure up the long-dead past. I hesitated, but finally, after my own long silence, I said slowly, I was Ali Akbar Kabas. He grinned at me through the armor on his face. Those were the days, eh, St. Stephen? Yes, yes they were, I agreed warily. I wondered how anyone who had taken so badly to imprinting had gotten placed in charge of such an elite commando brigade. Some Vatican official must have been mad to have put him there. He would have been better as a line soldier from what I had seen so far. Have you met any of the men yet? No, I just put in an hour ago. I have not even had a chance to see my quarters yet, sir. St. Michael waved a black hand at a corporal who stood nearby. Epstein will show you to the CO's quarters. All my personal effects have been removed. You've got the run of the place. If you want a tour of Porto di Levante, I am not due for my shuttle to Rome until 1800 hours. Volcano is quite lovely this time of year. Also hot, I thought. Damned hot. The island was only 22 miles off the northern Sicilian coast, but it felt like it was closer to hell. I was quick with my reply. No, no, that is all right. I am weary from my trip. It is a long way from Jerusalem to here. I was not up to spending any time with St. Michael. His very manner was suggestive of a time best forgotten in my life, a time when I was free and not a slave. St. Michael's next comment bothered me, 
though I could not pin down why. By Allah, you were just in the city, yes? Has it changed much in five years? Jerusalem? No, it has changed very little. After the tussles of five years ago, it now finally seems to be the one sacred thing no one will touch out there. Again, the polycarp bunched around St. Michael's mouth as he smiled. Wistfully, he said, I often wish I could see the Dome of the Rock again. Yes, I agreed simply. I also wish that. The Dome of the Rock, Kabat es Sakra, is one of the most sacred shrines in the Muslim religion. Near the Wailing Wall, it stood in the oldest quarters of Jerusalem for hundreds of years as a holy place immemorial to the site where Muhammad rose to heaven to confer with Allah and the prophets. It was now a shattered ruin. I did not understand the instant empathic sorrow I felt for St. Michael. I should have felt little for him. His conditioning was slipping. I wondered whether that was why he was being pulled from his command. Perhaps he was simply getting too old. I had heard rumours that the older you became, the harder it was for imprinting to retain its hold. Perhaps he was regaining his self-control, his free will. Maybe the prelates were afraid of him. I wondered whether they would just kill him outright. I thought about it for a moment or two. It gave me a sordid kind of hope that lay curled in the pit of my own stomach, a hope that almost feared to manifest itself fully. It was not until that moment I realized just how strong my death wish was. "'Are you coming, sir?' asked Corporal Epstein. "'What?' I answered, coming out of my daze. "'Oh, yes, of course, Corporal.' Epstein led me out of the office, but not before St. Michael's parting shot. "'Wait a second, Colonel,' he said. "'When do you intend to get augured?' I was puzzled by the question. I am already augured, Colonel. Augering was our term for biophysical martial augmentation. It was a dark joke that reflected our feelings of being burrowed into like an auger bites into the hard ground of the earth. I have got the standard polycarb bone transplants, bioelectrical muscle enhancement and sense augmentation. What more could I want? Even with the armor over his face, his surprise was unmistakable. They didn't tell you then. Tell me what? I demanded in a growl. My anger peaked. Every member of the elect squadron has to undergo radical augering. Everything possible. He lifted his arms above his head as if he were going to embrace the air, including the permanent implantation of body armor. Son of a bitch, I swore. Two. Inspection of the troops went smoothly. I was impressed with their spit and polish. They really appeared to be a good group of men, especially well-disciplined. I was certain that they were as nasty as the day they had been imprinted, still ready to exterminate any designated enemy on sight. I took a liking to them from the beginning. When I first saw them, I knew St. Michael had not been jesting with me about the full augering. Every one of those poor bastards was clad just like their C.O. At attention, out on the parade ground, they looked like a gathering of frogmen in wetsuits. 
The polycarp armor was just the augmentation I could see. I was sure there was plenty more auguring I could not see. I wondered what surprises awaited me. I had few doubts that they were a very dangerous group. I would have to learn to wield this weapon with a fine touch. I hoped I had not lost my finesse out on the Gaza Strip. Out there it was the biggest, toughest, meanest and most numerous sons of bitches that were victorious. No finesse was involved. My military command out in the desert had been like working with a machine gun. These men reminded me more of fine daggers. They had to be used carefully to cripple the enemy. I gave them the usual gung-ho speech about protecting the Holy Land from the marauding Muslim enemy and how we were the last hope for the West. I watched for reactions to this speech on their faces, but I did not detect a twitch. That was always a good sign. There was no slippage in the strength of imprinting there. I told them a little of my history. I started with the standard conversion story, how I had taught political science at the University of Riyadh before the war, becoming a soldier for the Arab League when hostilities were triggered. I described the conflict against the Jews near Sidon, where I was taken as a prisoner of war. Then I told them how the Jews had sold me off to the Vatican. I did not go into detail about the rest of that early period because I knew it was the same story for all of us. After capture, I was radically imprinted, electronically brainwashed, with the tenets of the Roman religion. I became an instant believer. They changed my name. I fought for them, and that was that. I was now a true and loyal member of the United Vatican Israeli Forces. My life before my forced conversion was clearly in my head, but it was like some inaccessible dream. I know now that my meeting with St. Michael disturbed me so greatly because he stirred part of that dream to life, a part I wished to keep dormant. I continued to convey my background to the troops. I told them of the story of my participation in the invasion of Libya and how I had contributed to the skirmish near Tripoli that toppled Gaddafi III from the throne. I finished with the latest news I brought from the Gaza Strip, how it was regained for the first time in two years. The elect listened attentively, but I doubted they paid too much attention. My story was no different from any of theirs, except that I was a successful combat officer. When I finished my speech, I turned them over to my second-in-command, Major St. Simon. He was eager to take them out to the gunnery range to appraise the new phase plasma rifles that had just arrived from the mainland. That was just fine with me. He could sit in the blazing sun all day as far as I was concerned. Having spent so much time in the desert, I was used to great heat, but this humid Mediterranean blanket that lay around me was sapping my strength like a great leaden boulder upon my chest. St. Simon led my men to the rifle rangers. They followed without a grunt or groan. I suppose their augmentation included a decent environmental control system with their body armor. I watched as they trotted off toward the southwest. They moved toward a looming mountain in the distance. I wondered which volcano it was. There were several peaks on the Lapari island of Volcano. The name of the place was definitely appropriate. I decided the looming purple colossus was probably Mount Lentia, the biggest of the three. Myth had it that Vulcan, the blacksmith of the gods, lived on Volcano. 
I almost believed that as I sniffed the vague sulfurous tang that hung in the air even miles from the sleeping mountain giants. Again I was reminded of the gates of hell. I slowly released breath through my teeth, relishing the illusory rush of cool air between my cracked lips. At one time the island had been a destination of tourists who had desired to steep themselves in the hot mud springs that were said to cleanse the body of ills. No more did they come since the war had begun so long ago. There seemed to be a somberness about the island that gave the impression of hidden immensities. The bizarre lava shapes that rose from the hilly terrain reminded me of a lunar landscape. I shuddered at the thought, wondering even as I did it why that bothered me. Our base of operations was on a hill overlooking the quaint, very Italian port city of Porto Levante. I could see desert-like areas in the distance that opened upon vast green fields and small pine forests. I turned back toward the base, walking slowly toward my quarters, which I had yet to get into any order. I sadly wondered about my existence as a slave. Ironically, I could still wonder about it. That was not something denied to my mind. I remained a thinking, feeling human being. It was just my free will that was gutted. That was it. I silently cursed my countrymen who had started a war that damned me to a lifetime of service to the enemy. My forced conversion had been during the third year of the war. I was placed in charge of the elect squadron two years later. Now the war was in its fifth year and it looked like it was raging just as strongly as it had begun. I will readily admit that my brethren had little practical reason for the war. Much as we hated the Jews and the Roman Church, they were of little threat to us any more. Scholars will probably argue for years about just what triggered the conflict, but even the most dim of us understood it was the Palestinian attack and destruction of the Church of the Resurrection and the Wailing Wall that began it all. Two perfectly placed Shaheen missiles had taken those targets down to the native bedrock of Jerusalem. The church was destroyed just as efficiently as the mad Caliph al-Hakim had done in 1009 with an army of 10,000 Shia warriors. The response of the Zionists had been quick and ruthless as they decimated the Dome of the Rock. The reaction of this vengeance was one of shock and dismay, with far-reaching and intense consequences. Those were the immediate causes, but immediate causes only tell the surface of the story. The story below the surface was more complex and yet simpler at the same time. I credit the instigation of the war to the virtual exhaustion of the last oil reserves in the Middle East. I subscribe to the economic theory of strife in the world. Why did my people begin a jihad with the papacy? Jealousy and anger are the best answers. Though the great Satan was brought down along with Europe in our decades-long jihad, we were economically doing none too well anymore ourselves. The mullahs and imams realized the free ride was over. It angered and terrified them. Monetary independence was suddenly a thing of the past. No more could they threaten the West with economic ruin if the infidels ignored our presence and demands. Suddenly we were becoming an invisible society. 
no longer important to the world community. China and India were rising as world powers even as we faded. So what did we have left? That can be answered in one word, faith. We still believed Allah was our God and that he would not abandon us in our need. There was something that was at the rock bottom of our beliefs. We needed to show him we still held faith in him and Muhammad his prophet. Sunni or Shia, it made no difference. Somewhere deep in our psyche, we believed if we did not demonstrate our faith, he would forsake us completely. In an almost mindless fashion, the final jihad was begun, a holy war to prove our belief and our faith to Allah. It is believed by my people that ultimately everything that is in our environment that is not in accord to the will of Allah must be eliminated. The Arab League decided that our environment would be cleansed for a final time. After the Dome of the Rock was shattered to dust, the so-called State of Israel was attacked with utter abandon. We intended to show Allah our faith by wresting control of the Holy Lands from the excrement-sucking Israelis. As usual, the Jews fought like the desert tigers they resemble so much. But for once, our sheer horrible exuberance was too overwhelming. They began to lose ground. Palestine began to fall into our hands. That was when the Vatican reluctantly stepped in to help. At first, the Vatican, which had obvious interests in the holy lands of Palestine, was little or no help. The Roman followers of Yeshua had actually followed his way of peace now for more than a thousand years, and they no longer knew how to defend themselves. They had few arms and fewer men to fight. Priests would certainly not sacrifice themselves for so earthly a cause. Little was gained by their meagre help to the Israelis. But far away, in the home of Satan, a researcher in psychology at Notre Dame University made a discovery that changed the way of warfare forever. He discovered a process for electrically imprinting information directly into the brain of a human. He believed he had found the ultimate teaching tool, but it was something far more deadly than that. With a little warping from the military researchers at the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute, the imprinter became a brainwashing device, the ultimate mind-distorting mechanism. The United States government, who took control of the device, desperate for money and more desperate for revenge, sold the plans of the imprinter to the Vatican. The Vatican, quick to take advantage of any situation, decided that an ironic though efficient solution to the conflict could be sought by use of the imprinter. They would use the device to convert prisoners of war to their religion. Their Jewish allies were initially horrified with the concept, but the Jews quickly came to realize the advantages of having former Muslims fighting for the freedom of the Holy Lands. Not only did it solve the problem of what to do with prisoners of war, but its potential psychological impact on the enemy was enormous. Imagine fighting a foe who knows your battle tactics and techniques as well as you do. Force-fed catechism started in earnest, but as with snowballs rolling downhill, they picked up speed and size swiftly. It was only a year or two before the Vatican armies consisted almost entirely of converts. 
Suddenly we were fighting our own brothers and fathers, cousins and uncles. It was a stunning blow, a horrible shock, but we were not discouraged so easily. When we began to ken the way of things, we resolved that every enslaved brother we freed from life was another martyr sent on happily to paradise. Even slavery, such as we faced, would not destroy our spirit. I came out of my reverie for a moment, feeling strangely schizophrenic as I saluted two of my subordinates. They were not part of my unit, but they were covered in the same body armor as my own men. I stared at their ebony bodies disappearing around a corner. I shivered despite the heat as I wondered what it would be like to be permanently enshrouded with that polycarp stuff. I was not looking forward to my auguring. I had been feeling inhuman enough lately. Being paved over like some highway would make me feel no better. I hoped vaguely as I walked up the steps to my quarters that the rest of the augmentation I received made up for being forced to endure the body armor. For the first time that day I wondered whether Colonel St. Michael's radical bio-augmentation had not pushed him over the edge, toward estrangement with the Christians. Perhaps I would get that lucky. 3. When I awoke from the final phases of my augmentation surgery, they would not allow me a mirror. The doctors said I would have to slowly come to terms with my new armored-covered features, but I would have none of their coddling. I angrily demanded a mirror with which to examine myself. The doctors continued to refuse until I bare-handedly crushed the metal water pitcher at my bedside. They realized with alarm that I was not only quite earnest in my desire, but very dangerous as well. Dr. Mirabelli, the Florentine, who was the chief bio-enhancement surgeon, borrowed a small hand mirror from one of the nurses at the station down the hall from my room. Keeping the mirror from me, he said, I do not recommend this, Colonel. You should build up to it slowly. I held a black-clad hand before his face. He stubbornly locked eyes with me, but he could not long compete with my unblinking countenance. He broke off and turned away. I scoffed at his response as I ran my eyes over the length of my armored body. It felt no different than being in a wetsuit, more comfortable even. A wetsuit had no environmental controls. There was a loss of physical skin sensation, but external sensors with visual outputs made up for that loss. I felt almost snug, protected. I finally said, Look at me, doctor. I feel like a great armored dragon. Do you really think that seeing my own face will make any difference to me any more? He shrugged his shoulders, sadly it seemed, and handed over the mirror. Reflected in the hand glass, I saw my immobile, Stygian face. My mouth went dry, my stomach twisted within my belly. Faced directly with my own stark inhumanity, I suddenly knew I had truly died and gone to hell those two years before when I had been taken prisoner by the enemy. When we'd received the orders for our first assignment a month later, it was impossible for me not to get angry. They had stuck us with just the kind of non-military bullshit task I hated. 
Cardinal Procopius and I screamed at each other for two hours over the matter. Colonel St. Stephen, the fat old fat shouted. Where is your conditioning? You are supposed to follow orders without question. That is nonsense, and you know it. Imprinting may have turned me loyal to the bastard Catholics, but it had not made me into a damned moron. I was their man, but I was no bloody automaton. I could think, argue, and disagree. I would have been useless as an officer if it were any other way. I do not understand your objection, growled the sweating scarlet robe prelate, obviously ignoring my outburst. My objection, you obese son of a hoary dealer, I said, savouring the insult that rolled so easily off my lips, is that this assignment of yours is not military in nature. It has no strategic purpose. Procopius's bloodshot blue orbs narrowed between his chubby eyelids. For a moment the Sicilian cardinal reminded me of an angry camel ready to spit. The image was rather appealing. I considered Procopius at least as obdurate and smelly as any camel I had ever met. I did not laugh, though the impulse crossed my mind. This was still serious business. Procopius, appearing anything but a patient suffering servant of Christ, blackly scowled. Maladetto! Disgraziato! I smiled, suddenly feeling better than I had in days. The Sicilian swear words had little effect on me. I had been called much worse than a foul-mouthed ingrate. With stormy eyes, the cardinal continued, I have already told you, this is not simply a military action. If you are successful, the repercussions will affect the morale of every Islamic soldier in the Middle East. Not at the cost of civilian lives. I had been conditioned to fight my Muslim brothers in the heat of battle, but civilians were still taboo to me. I could not kill innocents of any race, creed, or colour. I was a soldier, not a murderer. There would be no need to combat civilians, said Procopius matter-of-factly. The oil field you are to destroy is unguarded, almost forgotten. Neither civilians nor the military should interfere. The mission should be easily accomplished by your men. Oil fields, I laughed to myself. I was certain this man was a fool. Did he really believe my brethren in the East even cared about oil fields any longer? Procopius had earlier spouted some nonsense about the last active oil field in the Arab League as being symbolic of the Middle East's previous economic independence. He seemed to think that if it were destroyed, it would be a stunning blow to the esprit de corps of the Muslim forces. He did not realize that a semi-depleted oil field meant nothing to my people now. The only thing that interested them any longer were death, Allah, and retrieving the homelands of their fathers. But Procopius would not listen to reason. Whether it is easily accomplished is not my concern. I do not believe it worth the inherent risk to my men. We will be dropped into the middle of Saudi Arabia. That is not friendly country, Cardinal. We will be forced into a hit-and-run operation. There is no alternative. You would have trouble getting us there and getting us out. Procopius frowned in thought. I wondered how much of a strain it was for him. I still do not see a problem. You should be able to infiltrate Saudi Arabia easily. Your men are all Arabs. You can blend into the... 
He stopped suddenly, realizing his mistake. He stared into my newly augmented, all-purpose, not-yet-combat-tested eyes. I felt the muscles of my face strain against its covering of polycarb armor. The revulsion was evident in his manner. He considered me less than human. Though I doubted he could perceive it, given my hard plastic face, I sneered at him. Neither I nor my men can blend in anywhere in the universe, Cardinal, except possibly at a training camp for hell. Cardinal Procopius struggled for the words for a moment before he said, That is obvious, said Stephen. He spat my name as if it were acid on his tongue. For just a moment I contemplated snapping the good cardinal's neck, but my conditioning became active, and I was left wondering what I had been considering a moment before. It was ironic that I could hate him personally as much as I desired, but even the slightest action against Procopius or his ilk was denied me. I calmly asked, Which Arabian oil field is this? The Gawar. I gaped at the cardinal. "'Are you mad, Procopius?' I asked with as much control as I could muster. "'That was the biggest oil field in the world at one time. "'It covers more than six thousand square kilometers. "'Yes, I know.' "'Fool! How do you want us to destroy something of that size?' "'I was hardly surprised by his answer. "'We have come into possession of a small, portable, thermonuclear device.' that would do the job nicely. My first response was one of controlled fury. I knew without a thought that the Israelis would not give the Catholics a nuclear device. It could only have come from one place. So, I responded coldly, not even my imprinted conditioning holding back my raw hatred. Even beaten down to a fifth-rate power, the American devils have finally decided to get back into the picture. That is none of your concern. There was no more of an answer than I expected. I grimaced, my face twisting beneath its black mask. You had better be careful, Cardinal. I have only been imprinted to be an ally to the Vatican. If the Americans come into this, I would take great joy in ordering my men to slaughter them. The blood drained from Procopius's face, as if I had sliced open an artery in his neck. I took nasty pleasure in his discomfort. It was without doubt the first time he realized just what a barely tamed beast he was working with. He was like a lion tamer faced with his first mauling. He stuttered. You couldn't do that. The Americans would be our allies, no different from us. I smiled. No, Cardinal. Our imprinting leaves us quite a bit of freedom in who we consider allies and enemies. He blanched to a shade of light grey, but he seized control of his emotions, narrowing his chubby-lidded eyes at me. The look on his round face became searing cold. I knew suddenly what was going through his mind. He would report to Rome after this meeting and tell them the present imprinting program left too much free will. The Vatican would order us to all undergo a new conditioning process to limit our license even further. It would condemn our lives to only further blackness. Oh, Allah. I gazed back into the fat man's eyes and wondered whether my continued hatred had not done my people more harm than good.